Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to Episode 1 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product generously supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and across all walks of life. I want to thank the Associate Director of Knowledge Exchange, Mr. Daryl Rock, and his great staff for their wisdom and wonderful ideas with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange practice to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as 19 future episodes in this series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net or from iTunes. Just search for KM Podcast. Alternately, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Transcripts and French language translation of these transcripts will be available shortly. The conversation that you're about to hear took place in Ottawa on Wednesday, May the 2nd, 2007, in the office of Irving Gold, the Vice President of External Affairs for the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada. Irving has been a leader for knowledge exchange in the healthcare world. He is consistently identified as someone who has influenced the thinking of literally thousands of people about the value of supporting knowledge exchange to improve how we do what we do in healthcare. I think there are lessons here for lifelong learning, for education, for the environmental field, and for a whole series of sectors in Canada trying to improve what they do. Our conversation lasted over an hour. I've edited it down to about half of that to what I think are the most interesting parts. I hope you agree. Some highlights to look for include a discussion about the fundamentals of leadership and knowledge exchange, concepts of vision, risk-taking, and sharing. There are some examples from other leading organizations. We discuss the concepts of innovation, culture change within organizations, bridging communities, and bring some personal examples of lifelong learning. Irving brings us his insight on questions of evidence, on decision-making, on the political process, on the value and limits of research, on how to build relationships, on questions of power, on the future of knowledge exchange, and opportunities for growth. I enjoyed this conversation very much and hope that you do also. Good morning, Irving. I appreciate you taking the time this morning, and I'm wondering if you can start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do. Uh, so, Irving Gold, Vice President of External Affairs, Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada. Our organization represents the 17 faculties of medicine in Canada. My primary role is to represent them externally. Uh, knowledge Transfer was my previous world as Director of Knowledge Transfer and Exchange at the Canadian Health Services Research Foundation and even before that at the Centre for Health, Ex- Health, Health Economics and Policy Analysis. So that's sort of been my professional zone of interest for the last 10 years. In talking to a whole number of people, I used a, a, a typical snowball survey method to identify leaders, and your name came up over and over and over again. So why don't we start with leadership? Mm-hmm. And in your mind, what is leadership? Well, in this field, in the field of KT, leadership just means not dying and not changing focus. I mean, there are... S- there are so few people with any level of expertise in this particular area that as much as I'd like to say it's some innate characteristic that I have, it really isn't. It's about staying power, focus. But that being said, I will acknowledge that probably I do possess some characteristics that make me able to assume the, the, the quasi-leadership role that I've been able to really... It's a small world in this community, so it hasn't been that difficult to rise to the top. Okay. <laughs> so you, you talk about some of those characteristics. What are some of those characteristics, especially with regards to knowledge exchange and knowledge transfer? Well, I, th- I think being able to have a vision. I mean, I think, th- th- I think there are people that are doers. There are people who are really good at operationalizing vision. And then there are people who are really good at coming up with vision. 
Uh, and I, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, I've been very fortunate to work in environments that have provided me with the ability to vision. Uh, and, and I enjoy visioning. And my visions are sometimes completely wrong, but I'm also a risk taker. And I think that's another part of being a leader. Uh, so being willing to take risk and articulate vision uh, and open yourself up for criticism, but also potentially have the ability to contribute to national and international discourse. I mean, that, so that's what it is. A lot of people are not comfortable, especially in public, floating out new ideas that are untested and that might be completely wrong. I love doing that. I'm very happy to be told I'm wrong because uh, it's a learning opportunity. And in an area like knowledge transfer, there have been lots of opportunities to be wrong. And I could tell you lots and lots of stories where I went out on a limb with an idea that was completely wrong. So leadership to me is the ability to, to, to think at that sort of conceptual visionary level, to be able to take the risk and, and be willing to be wrong, and and to work with, and, and to know what you can't do. I mean, the other thing is I know I've, you know I've surrounded myself by people who are able to operationalize vision. It's been key for me. Being able to have people that I can talk with and share ideas with and then know that they're going to go away and create some magical way of making some of these experiments happen, that's been phenomenal. In your previous job, and like you said, this one is, is still evolving and emerging, um, but in your previous job, I mean, the Canadian Health Services Research Foundation is considered by many around the world as, as the leading agency around knowledge transfer. And you've tried a whole series of things. And you're smiling, so I think well, you might have some opinions I, about that. I'm smiling because the Canadian Health Services Research Foundation does some amazing things. There's absolutely no question. And 10 years ago, it was one of the only agencies doing some of these. There are other agencies and other organizations across the planet, and even here in Canada, and, and in this province, and even in this city, that are doing things that are just as, if not more, innovative. But they do it very quietly. I mean, what CHSRF okay. has done very well has is that it has adopted the role of the spokesperson for the community in Canada, in the health sector at least, um, and it's maintained that position. But there's incredibly innovative stuff happening on the ground in organizations that just haven't taken the time or don't have the desire to spread the word. I mean, they're just busy doing instead of preaching and talking. Okay. Now, I don't, now, I'm not at all trying to take away from the foundation. The foundation has been foundational. Uh, but 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 I have to say that, that we do ourselves a great disservice as a community by overlooking some of the really neat innovations that are happening in like this, for example. Well, let's let's talk about some of those innovations right now. Um, one of the things that that hopefully these podcasts will do is begin a conversation about how innovation isn't always something completely drastically new, but it's 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 ways of taking something from one place, putting it into another, or bringing two things in a different way. So, mm -hmm. given your ability to see all these things, what are some of the things that, you, that have struck you in other agencies that have been really innovative, that you see as, as success stories? That's hard. I can tell you, for instance, the CSSS in Quebec, in Montérégie, for example. One of the most cutting-edge I would say, regional health authorities in Quebec, integrating all kinds of knowledge transfer processes and, and other organizational processes that encourage the transfer of uh, research-based evidence throughout their organization. And they'll be the first to tell you that the concepts have been adopted from CHSRF's tireless uh, marketing of the concept of KT. Appreciation for research-based evidence has become so fundamental to the day-to-day -day operations of that regional health authority that it's almost imperceptible. Right. It comes from the CEO, uh, who is an incredible leader, and it goes all the way through the management structure right down to the program officers. I mean, it, at CHSRF, we used to often say that this is not about individual projects. It's about culture change, and I think that's absolutely true. And, and that regional health authority, for example, 
really typifies well, the kind of organizational change we're looking for. Okay, so the organizational cultural change, I think, is a really important piece because one of the, the ways that knowledge exchange is described is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. And so, so influencing behavior, you're talking about, you know, about cultural changes. And oh. I mean, that's the hardest thing to do is to influence behavior. How do you do that? Well, it is, and we forget that that's what it's all about. I mean, one of the things that has frustrated me of late and is the topic of an editorial that I've just written is that the KT community has forgotten that what we're trying to do is not KT. We're not here to employ ourselves as KT specialists. We're not here to create a whole new subspecialty. We're here to, to, to work on bridging communities as a cultural thing and one doesn't do KT. One does a whole bunch of things in order to facilitate the transfer of knowledge from one community to another. So it's a, it's an outcome. You know, knowledge transfer is an outcome. It's not an activity. And so there's a million different activities that can feed into that outcome. When you think of it that way, you realize that there's stuff happening all over the place in the name of knowledge transfer that doesn't carry that label and doesn't carry that rubric. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was at the launch of the Ivy School of Business Health MBA program. In, in Toronto and I'm sitting here at this launch of this MBA health program and I'm thinking why have they invited me here this has absolutely nothing to do with knowledge transfer and then in the opening comments by Senator Kirby and and uh, Alan Hudson and the dean of the new program I realized it's absolutely about knowledge transfer what they're talking about is bringing the brightest minds from the business community and the brightest minds from the health sector the school of it's a, it's a partnership between the school of business and the school of uh, medicine and dentistry and they're bringing the two communities together to transfer knowledge and work collaboratively to train a generation of people who are running the health system using the principles of business. I realized right there that this isn't multi-stakeholder in the sense of KT that we think of decision-maker-researcher. It's researcher-researcher and student, but it's about merging two academic disciplines in a way that hasn't been done before. You know, and the, and the overarching message was, hey, there's a whole bunch of research and evidence around how to run a business and a business in terms of someone with a, supply, a supplier and a consumer, and that's what the health system is in Canada. There are suppliers and consumers, and it's paid for by the government, but that's the difference. Otherwise, it's a marketplace. There are a whole bunch of principles that should be governing the running of any business that are not being used in the health system. The example, of course, was the MRI machines. You know, I mean, And I love it when, when Kirby talks about this. He says, you know, in any other area of the, uh, any other sector, if you have such a huge proportion of your money going to the capital expenditure, like an MRI machine, the bloody thing wouldn't be running from 9 to 5. You know, the MRI machine doesn't care how many MRIs it does or how many hours it gets used in a day. He said in any other sector you would be t it, that had such a huge proportion of its money being spent on capital, you'd be making sure that that capital was being used to its maximum capacity. 24 hours a day. In the health sector, 9 to 5. The point is that's a huge transfer of knowledge that needs to happen or could happen between the school of business and, and medicine. I guess my point is it really is about culture change and it isn't just about culture change among users of research and creators of research. It's all over the place. It's happening everywhere. As we speak, knowledge transfer as a concept is happening Constantly, I mean, this is an exercise in knowledge transfer. While we're on the topic of, of culture change, um, the Canadian Council on Learning is, in many ways, about a culture change about lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. So, I'm sure you have opinions about lifelong learning and knowledge transfer. When you hear the when you hear the term lifelong learning, what do you think of? Well, it's funny, you know, I, I heard it for the first time in a conversation with Daryl, and I kind of rolled my eyes. I thought, oh, please, you know, what, what, what he's talking about is, is all of the sort of formal educational opportunities that 
are available for people as they progress through their life. And I, I, I no longer think of it that way. I realize that life is a process of lifelong learning. Some of it's formal and some of it's informal. But just like that, just, just in the same way, knowledge transfer often is informal. And so there are many different ways that we learn. And so the Internet is an amazing tool for lifelong learning. You know, my father's 72 and is now learning how to use the Internet. That's a process of lifelong learning. It's not just about work support. It's not just about, you know, uh, certificates in X, Y, and Z. It, it's just a, it's a process that we all are continuously involved in. So maybe the concept of support is actually an important one to follow up on. When you think of an infrastructure or incentives for lifelong learning, what, what do you think about I mean, the, in, the, in, the Internet is an example of an infrastructure that's in place. Yeah, but we can get even less. For, I mean, sure. uh, literature. And literature. Yeah. You know, nobody ever talks about that. But, you know, I, and that's, that's part of this whole process, right? I read a wonderful book called Shantaram the other month. Uh, you know, it's a biography by a guy who escaped from prison and moved, ran to India. Anyway, to make a long story short, I learned through reading that book, a work of fiction, in my personal time, in the hammock or whatever, I learned about the history of India, I learned about the political climate of India in the 1980s, I learned all kinds of things about 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 the Jain religion, about the tensions between Sikhs and, and Hindus in India. That's education. That's learning. It didn't feel like it. It wasn't a formal process. The stimulus was me buying a novel in an airport bookstore. You know, this whole, what is Stephen Harper reading this month, that I don't even remember his name. Jan Martel. Right. So that process that he's undergoing is a process of trying to encourage our Prime Minister to engage in a process of lifelong learning through literature. So, you know, we have to take our blinders off. It isn't just about research. Now, that doesn't... I mean, many people who write literature do research in order to write their literature. So research does factor in here. Okay. I guess the walls are blurry. It's where knowledge ends up. Okay. And, you know, it's very hard for me to imagine any any communication device that doesn't contain some element of knowledge transfer in it. I mean, that's what... I guess that's my big aha lately, is that communication is knowledge transfer, period. And I used to bristle when people said that to me, because I was, in my early days, trying to establish this new thing. And everybody said, Irving, this is not new, this is about communication. So how do you support communication? How do you, how do you encourage communication is, is, is you make no question stupid. It's another thing that I've just realized. I mean, part of, the, part of what the knowledge transfer movement has done in the health sector in terms of bridging the gap between research and, dis- and decision makers is it's made it okay for decision makers to say, I don't know. That's a huge cultural shift. CEOs of regional health authorities are now actually allowed to say in public, gee, you know, I, I'm not actually sure what the best way to pay primary care physicians is, or I'm not really sure what the optimal number of MRI machines is in my region. I need to consult the evidence. Twenty years ago, they were expected to know the answer by virtue of being a CEO. So that's a fundamental, I mean, going back to leadership, that's a fundamental shift in how leaders see their role. Absolutely. Being able to question. Okay. Legitimizing the process of questioning is critical to the process. This is interesting. I've never actually discussed it within this. Because of the way we fund research in this country and in any, actually, it is conducive to asking questions to which we already have the answer. Most of the time we've got half of the data collected. People are very naive in terms of what they think research does. Researchers cannot ask stupid questions. I call it the stupid questions. I mean, to me, stupid questions are where big payoff answers lie. But nobody's going to fund a research application for which there's absolutely no... Why not? Risk. Risk. It's too risky? Sure. I mean, CIHR is going to fund research among seasoned researchers, questions that seem like they're logical progressions from existing stocks of knowledge, incremental pieces. I mean, 
the first thing people do is they look at an application and they see how grounded is it in the literature. Well, if you're grounding it in the literature, you're already asking questions that are, I see that, that very few people are asking really revolutionary questions. Creating an environment where it's okay to ask stupid questions is critical to this process of knowledge transfer because if you don't ask, you don't find out. Well, that's actually, you know, it's interesting because there's this concept around evidence that, you know, evidence is what is most credible. Right, is the part that's the most certain as opposed to the part that we don't know. And so where does these asking the, the risky questions and evidence fit together? How do they how do they work together or can they work together? When we when we talk about evidence, increasingly the conversation that I hear about evidence is what is most credible, right? That we look at It's what we know for sure. Pr- for sure. It's the stuff that's yeah. pretty grounded and solid. Which so, is ridiculous. So you don't actually have to question it. Right? Yeah, it's, but that's I mean completely ridiculous. 